All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, it is Thursday, so it is time to dig deeper into the Psalms. This week we look at Psalms 32 and 33, focusing on the blessings that are given with the forgiveness that God gives. So we look at Psalm 32, a mascal of David. Now what is a mascal? A mascal is simply a penitential psalm looking for confession, absolution. Luther sees these psalms as instructive in the sense of wisdom and understanding within a spiritual and holy context over against a worldly context because it does give us a difference in the way we look at things because truly often we see that those who are most unrepentant seem to have the most blessings. So let's go into Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord accounts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach you. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So far, Psalm 32. So many things to talk about in this psalm. First of all, the lines that we are very familiar with. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. This has been playing around in my mind quite often as I have looked not only at this psalm to prepare for this podcast, but also for last week's presentation I did on unforgettable forgiveness at Higher Things in at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan, but also that I've done this week on one of the majoring in the minor videos on Hosea, that we see the blessings of those who are forgiven, whose sin is not counted against them. That is the great blessing that we have. That is what David is teaching us in this masculine. This is what is keeping us tied to confession and absolution. And he says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Those who are stricken in their conscience by their sin feel the heavy pressing hand of God's judgment upon them, and it is not comfortable. You know that, I know that. We see it all the time. Therefore, we have, verse 5, 
as part of the opening versicles for the Divine Service Liturgy in Divine Services 3 and 5 in the Lutheran Service Book, which go back to uh, Divine Service 3 being the common service, page 5 and page 15 from TLH, which then came from the previous English hymnal, but also DS5 being the translation of Luther's Bechamassa of the 1520s, the original reform that he made in the Mass that was spoken in German and completely in German. So what are those lines? I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That is where the great blessing and promise come from, that we can come confess our sins to the Lord, and he forgives our iniquity. He remembers them no more, Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 31, 34. Again, another text that has been milling around in my head for the last couple of weeks in preparations for all these things. And of course, we have this psalm punctuated by the sila, the liturgical term that we really don't know what it means. Is this a time to pause for a prayer and reflection on what has just been said? Very likely. Is this, as others have said, a key change? I don't know. Do we really need a psalm with one, two, three, four different keys? Or maybe just going back and forth between two. It seems to be, from a musical standpoint, quite unnecessary. But whatever the seal is, it punctuates this psalm as we had it after verse 4, we have it after verse 5, we have it again after verse 7, when talking about the godly offering prayers where he may be found. And this brings up the question, have you found Jesus? And where do you find him? I found him right where he says he will be, in his word, in his sacraments, in the worship of his people together. That is where he may be found. Sure, yes, we can go with the omnipresence of God and of Jesus and saying, well, I can be out anywhere and be in tune with God. Yes, there are places where we can worship anywhere in the world. It doesn't have to be in a church building. It can be at home in our living rooms. It can be in our bedroom. It can be out doing a nature walk, but that is not where he has promised to be for all of what we need. Is it acceptable to do that from time to time? Sure. I've seen many places where you've had, like campgrounds, ask a local pastor if he would come out during the summer and do a Saturday night service for people who are wanting it. No problem with that. But where does God look to meet with us in his house where his word and his sacraments are given out on a weekly basis. This is where we can find him and the rush of many waters will not come up against us and wipe us away, but we will be preserved from trouble. We will be surrounded with shouts of deliverance. 
And with this, we find ourselves with understanding that we are not having to be led around by bit and bridle like a horse or a mule. We don't have to be curbed. We are overflowing with the joy that is ours in Christ. And in Christ, we have that forgiveness. With that forgiveness, we have the blessings so that we may be glad in the Lord and rejoice. And we may shout for joy as David ends the psalm. All right, we move on into Psalm 33, where we continue our focus on the blessings. And the blessings not just as the blessings themselves, but the reason behind the blessings. The steadfast love of the Lord. All right, Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope of salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our God is glad in him. For our heart is glad in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. So far, Psalm 33. So again, many things that we hear and see often in the scriptures, in the Psalms, and are very recognizable to us. And it's one of those where I've seen, coming from a background in the Church of Christ, where there is the adamancy of a cappella singing, first things that jump out at me are verses 2 and 3 of giving thanks to the Lord with the lyre, making melody to him with the harp of ten strings, playing skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. And having grown up in a environment where instrumental music was very, very, very condemned in worship, to then have the Psalms have such great things just reminds me again of the great divide we have in some of Christendom. The argument given most often about the refusal to use instrumental music in worship is that Jesus doesn't tell us to use instruments. That 
Paul doesn't talk about the instrumental music in any of his epistles or anything like that. But that also gives the rise to replacement theology, that everything from the Old Testament is replaced by the New. So if it's not in the New Testament, then it doesn't matter for the church. But for those of us who hold to the whole of Scripture and believe that Jesus doesn't have to say anything about instrumental music in worship, just like he doesn't say anything specifically about homosexuality or things like that, is because he's already said it. When he talks about things that are in the Old Testament law, he's usually clarifying what's there, usually strengthening it. If he's not mentioning something about it, it's because he's already said it well enough in the Old Testament, and nothing is changing with it. So when he talks in the Sermon on the Mount about the different things about murder and hatred being the same thing, about lust being adultery, about all the things that intensify the commandments from not only the physical action of it, but also the mental and emotional part of it. That's acceptable. But when you have something that doesn't need to be emphasized or expanded on, it holds from the old. So you have the Psalms all over the place going through and talking about having instrumental music, having the strings, having the horns. And I would want to say, and I have made myself not get involved in the last time this was brought up, which was actually just last week. Uh, I saw probably the same post at least 15 times over the course of three or four days from a friend of mine from college about all of the reasons for not having instrumental music. My first question I want to say is, okay, wouldn't Jesus have said when he was at the temple, you know, cleansing the temple or in the worship services around the different feasts that we talk about, wouldn't he say something about not needing the instruments anymore if he were wanting to get rid of them? My other side of it is, let's take a look at this logically. And this is going on a very long tirade, but uh, I'm... I apologize for that, but I just want to get this out and said. For the first three centuries of the church, basically, Christianity was an illegal religion. We talk about finding the carvings in the walls of the catacombs under Rome, because that's where the Christians met, hiding from the authorities that were persecuting them. No, they're not using instruments and blowing ram's horns and playing on stringed instruments because nobody breaks into somebody's house by ringing the doorbell. I mean, you don't do that. You don't announce that you're doing something illegal, even if it is something that is commanded by God and therefore supersedes the government. But we also understand that we need not be martyrs because we 
absolutely desire to die. We're martyrs because of the witness that we give and the fact that even though it might be deemed illegal, which I don't doubt will happen again. I mean, we see that happening basically in Canada right now, is that I, I foresee the freedom of religion quickly being gotten rid of in the next, oh, I'd even say close to decade. Uh, if last year was any uh, indication from the experiment that was done there. But that goes on to a, a different subject. But we have here the steadfast love of the Lord being shown to us and being shown in his righteousness and his justice, his faithfulness to his promises, his faithfulness to his word that is upright. And that word is what we have as the focal point in especially verses 6 and 7 as the psalmist goes back to creation and God speaking things into existence. That he spoke and there was light. He spoke and the dry land emerged from the sea. He spoke and the sun, moon, and stars came out to house the light. He spoke and the birds and the fish and the land animals were all created. That word is powerful. That word is still faithful to the promises that he has given. But we don't always like to cling to the promises. And we see this in verses 16 and 17. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Now this psalm has no superscription. We don't know exactly who wrote it, but these verses do ring out maybe David might have done it and he just didn't sign it. Because you think, the king is not saved by his great army. One of the most disastrous times in David's reign was when he did a census of the people to see how large an army he could muster. And God sent a plague among them and gave David choices as to which he would rather have. Uh, so the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. Young David is the one who defeated the massive giant Goliath. Goliath, and we talk about all the big things and his powerful weapons and his strength and his height and all this. Still, a young shepherd boy with a sling and a stone took him out. And the war horse, yeah, absolutely not a hope a true hope of salvation. It cannot rescue. It can only help maybe flee for a little bit from the battle, maybe cause a little bit of damage charging into the enemy's lines, but again, it cannot save. Because as we saw from the previous psalm, Psalm 32, it has to be curbed by bit and bridle. It cannot save because in war, even the most trained horses will get to a point where they're like, no, I don't want to do this. I'm out of here. We'll buck their rider off if the rider is not firmly in control. There's no rescue there if you're bucked off onto the ground and trampled. There is 
the false hope that we want to put into this world. What is the true hope? Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. What do we do? Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Echoes of the Te Deum again coming out as we seek his mercy, his steadfast love, because we hope in that. That is the source of our hope. That is what the entire Bible is all about. Because you have, going back to Genesis 3, the hope of Adam and Eve is the promise of the offspring of Eve who would crush the serpent's head. The hope of Abram is the fact that God would make an a 75-year-old man, even up to a 100-year-old man, be able to bear a child from a 65- or 90-year-old wife that is far beyond the age of childbearing. The hope is in the promise. The hope is in the steadfast love and mercy of God. And that is why the forgiven are blessed. Because that forgiveness is not temporary. That forgiveness is not conditional. That forgiveness is as sure as every other one of his promises that he makes in his word. The promise that he is your heavenly father. He is my heavenly father. That he is our strength, our shield, and our only source of refuge. All right, that's it for this week of digging deeper into the Psalms. I encourage you to come back next week for the Confessional Corner, continuing on into Apology 5 as we look at the adversary's disruption of the text and the mutilation that they do to their proof text. Also next week, we look at Psalm 34 as we dig deeper into it. Continue listening to the Moments Meditation that are there to help give you a boost in the morning or whenever you listen to it for just a quick word from our Lord, especially as we are going through the passion of our Lord and getting to his crucifixion in the next few days. I encourage you to listen to those as well. Until then, this is Pastor Doug Minton thanking you for listening this week and wishing you God's richest blessings as you wrestle with theology. Amen.